Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin Gregg, an attorney with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt. Back again to review the week's precedential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. As always, this show doesn't constitute legal advice, and it has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. This week, we're covering five cases, three of which the circuits decided to publish on Friday. So thanks for keeping me on my toes, circuits. We'll be addressing many topics, including motions to reopen, jurisdiction, agency deference, retroactivity, and asylum. Fun fact, in three of the five cases, the non-citizen is challenging his removal from outside the United States. What a show! One more thing before we start. I'm very thankful to everyone who has listened to the show these past two weeks and given me valuable feedback, particularly my fellow KKTP attorney, Eddie Ramos. And if you haven't liked the first two episodes, well, third time's a charm. Now off to the first case. The first case we're going to talk about this week is Reyes Vargas v. Barr out of the Tenth Circuit on May 14th, 2020. This case involves sua sponte motions to reopen, the departure bar to motions to reopen, and jurisdiction. But not the Tenth Circuit's jurisdiction, the BIA's jurisdiction. It also involves circuit deference to the BIA's interpretation of regulations, and it creates a circuit split. In short, it's a proper judicial slapdown, and the perfect case to start off episode 3 of the review. Right off the bat, this is a bit of a complicated case, touching on a lot of areas of immigration law. But the holding is relatively simple. An immigration judge has authority to reopen removal proceedings of a non-citizen who has been ordered removed, even if the non-citizen has departed the United States, so long as the IJ uses his or her sua sponte authority to do so. A bit of legal background is necessary on this one. Even where a non-citizen has been ordered removed from the United States, IJs have authority to reopen proceedings for further analysis or additional hearings. The immigration statutes and regulations provide IJs with a few avenues for reopening. One of those avenues is simply where the IJ believes it's appropriate to do so. This is known as sua sponte reopening. 8 CFR section 1003.23b1 is the regulation that provides immigration judges the authority to reopen proceedings. Under that regulation, an immigration judge may reopen proceedings, quote, upon his or her own motion at any time, end quote. This is the sua sponte language. At the same time, under the regulation, quote, a motion to reopen shall not be made by a person subsequent to his or her departure from the United States, end quote. This is the departure bar. So that's the legal framework we're dealing with. Here are the facts. Mr. Reyes Vargas, Mr. Reyes for short, has been a lawful permanent resident of the United States for 28 years, since he was 13 years old. In 2014, he pled guilty to aggravated battery and false imprisonment of his wife. These convictions made Mr. Reyes removable from the United States for two reasons. But his criminal defense attorney did not advise him of his potential removability before he pled guilty. Some of you may already know where this is going. An IJ ordered him removed in 2015, and he was physically deported a month later. And 99 out of 100 times, that would have been the end of it. 
But in 2016, Mr. Reyes, through new attorneys, and from outside the United States, moved the criminal court to vacate his conviction under the Supreme Court's 2010 decision, Padilla v. Kentucky. Under Padilla, criminal attorneys must advise non-citizens of the possible immigration consequences of their plea. If they don't, a constitutional violation occurs, and the conviction is invalid. The criminal court in this case granted Mr. Reyes's motion and vacated his convictions. But remember, he was already ordered removed for his convictions, and he was actually removed from the United States. Neither of these facts change simply because he no longer has convictions. So Mr. Reyes, again from outside the United States, filed a motion to reopen his removal proceedings with the IJ and to terminate his removal proceedings, which, if granted, would return Mr. Reyes to LPR status, like magic. The IJ denied Mr. Reyes's motion, and the BIA affirmed that denial for one reason. The BIA held that under the departure bar regulation, IJs and the BIA lack jurisdiction to reopen proceedings if the non-citizen has departed the United States, like Mr. Reyes had. Because remember, under the regulation, quote, a motion to reopen shall not be made by or on behalf of a person subsequent to his or her departure from the United States, end quote. But what about if the judge is the one making the motion, rather than someone on behalf of a person? That's essentially what sua sponte reopening technically is. The judge reopening proceedings on his or her own. And that's what the Tenth Circuit relied upon. The Tenth Circuit held in this case that because sua sponte reopening is an authority that the judges, by definition, perform on their own, rather than on motion by a party, the departure bar doesn't apply to sua sponte motions to reopen. A party's motion for a judge to use his or her sua sponte authority is simply an invitation for the judge to invoke his or her inherent sua sponte authority. And so, the departure bar does not apply. Gotta love the law. And that's pretty much the holding. The departure bar regulation does not prevent immigration judges from reopening proceedings using their sua sponte authority. This holding from the Tenth Circuit is at odds with decisions out of the Second, Third, and Fifth Circuits. So we've got a circuit split. I think it's important to briefly touch on how the Tenth Circuit got here, because it involves important issues of administrative law and agency deference. The BIA is an administrative agency and is part of the Department of Justice. The Departure Bar Regulation is a Department of Justice regulation that governs the BIA. So essentially, in this case, the BIA is interpreting its own regulation. Prior to the Kaiser decision out of the Supreme Court last year, circuit courts gave administrative agencies like the BIA a lot of leeway to interpret their own regulations. But last year, the Supreme Court changed it up a bit in Kaiser. Most importantly to this case, after Kaiser, circuit courts now defer to an agency interpretation of its own regulations only if the regulation is, quote, truly ambiguous, end quote, and only after applying all the traditional tools of statutory construction. And as many lawyers know, there are many tools in that toolbox. Applying statutory interpretation tools in this case, the Tenth Circuit found the regulation unambiguous. So that's the end of the analysis under Kaiser. The Tenth Circuit does not defer to the BIA's interpretation of its own regulation. All right, enough about that riveting administrative law. Now for some good stuff. 
First, this case is a treatise on the history of motions to reopen, if anyone out there is interested in that sort of thing. Next, at footnote 13, in one sentence, the Tenth Circuit rejects the BIA's contrary published holding from 2008 in Armendariz Mendez. Incredible! The Tenth Circuit also overruled, in light of Kaiser, its own contrary holding from 2009 in Rosalio Puga. An interesting legal quirk. Although circuit courts like the Tenth Circuit do not generally have authority to review challenges to the BIA's failure to reopen proceedings sua sponte, the Tenth Circuit could review the claims in this case because Mr. Reyes brought a pure question of law. He was challenging only the BIA's interpretation of the jurisdictional regulation departure bar. He was not challenging the substance of the BIA's decision because the BIA didn't reach the substance of Mr. Reyes's motion. Had the BIA reached the substance and had Mr. Reyes challenged that decision, the Tenth Circuit would have lacked jurisdiction to review the issue. Talk about walking a fine line. One more point on this. At footnote 4, the Tenth Circuit notes that the government agreed, at oral argument, that the court had jurisdiction to rule on this purely legal question. So, if you have a similar case and the government asserts, as it always does, that the court lacks jurisdiction, cite to this case, footnote 4, and the government's concession. One final point. When the IJ initially denied Mr. Reyes's motion, the IJ did so simply by checking a box and writing, quote, for the reasons stated in the government's opposition motion, end quote. Even the BIA recognized in this case that the IJ's decision appeared, quote, unreasoned, end quote, but upheld the IJ's ultimate legal conclusion. Put another way, both the Tenth Circuit and the BIA agree that when an IJ denies a motion, at least a complicated one, by simply checking a box and agreeing with DHS, the IJ has issued an unreasoned decision that should be remanded. And that is Reyes Vargas v. Barr. The next case is out of the First Circuit on May 15, 2020, Diaz-Ortiz v. Barr. This case involves an asylum application, adverse credibility finding, and most importantly, evidentiary due process concerns. Ultimately, the First Circuit denied the petitioner's asylum application, with Judge Lopez dissenting. The petitioner, Mr. Diaz, came to the United States at 16 years old from El Salvador. It appears he began associating with MS-13 in Boston, and he developed a bit of a criminal record. He applied for asylum, claiming that MS-13 in El Salvador had previously attacked him because he was a practicing evangelical Christian, and that MS-13 in El Salvador had murdered his aunt. The immigration judge found Mr. Diaz not credible, based in large part on perceived inconsistencies between his testimony and reports from the Boston Police Gang Unit, also known as Brick Reports. DHS submitted these reports over Mr. Diaz's objections. These reports indicated that Mr. Diaz himself was affiliated with MS-13 in Boston. The BIA affirmed the IJ's decision and Mr. Diaz was physically deported to El Salvador. The First Circuit upheld the adverse credibility finding, based largely on the Brick Reports. Unsurprisingly, then, the crux of this case is whether the Brick Reports were properly relied upon by the IJ and the BIA. Mr. Diaz argued that the IJ's reliance on the Brick Reports was fundamentally unfair and a due process violation, because the Brick Reports themselves violated Federal Regulation 28 CFR Section 23.20a. 
This regulation governs information sharing by intelligence and police agencies. But the First Circuit held that even if the regulation was violated, violation of the regulation does not impact the evidentiary exclusionary rule or otherwise make the BRIC reports inadmissible in immigration court. The First Circuit also noted that the federal rules of evidence don't actually apply in immigration court. Accordingly, the First Circuit affirmed the BIA's decision denying asylum and related relief. The practice pointers and tips from this case come largely from the dissent. Here they are. In dissent, Judge Lopez focuses a significant amount of his ire at the deficiencies in the BRIC reports, largely glossed over by the majority. Because, as Judge Lopez explains in extensive detail, the BRIC reports are replete with errors and race-based innuendo, and because the reports were central to the adverse credibility finding, Judge Lopez would remand back to the BIA. Judge Lopez's dissent also provides an interesting overview of how gang affiliations are documented by the Boston police and cites excellent case law for practitioners to use when making evidentiary exclusion arguments in immigration court. And that's Diaz-Ortiz v. Barr. Next up, a case out of the Third Circuit, also published on Friday, May 15th, Francisco v. Attorney General of the United States. This case is about CIMTs. Specifically, the Third Circuit joined the 2nd, 5th, 9th, and 10th Circuits to hold that the BIA's new definition of a CIMT in matter of Diaz-Lizarraga cannot be applied retroactively to convictions that occurred before Diaz-Lizarraga was published in 2016. Let me unpack that a bit. Before Diaz-Lizarraga, theft crimes only qualified as crimes involving moral turpitude if the crime statute required, as an element, a, quote, intent to permanently deprive an owner of property, end quote. Many crimes, apparently including the crime at issue in this case, don't require this element, and instead allow for conviction where someone steals property temporarily, or without an intent to keep the property forever. And so, many convictions are not CIMTs. In Diaz-Lizarraga, the BIA changed this definition, holding that the CIMT definition covers convictions that require, quote, an intent to deprive the owner of his property either permanently or under circumstances where the owner's property rights are substantially eroded, end quote. Later in 2016, in matter of Obaya, the BIA applied the new definition retroactively. The Third Circuit held in this case that Diaz-Lizarraga cannot be applied retroactively, and that the old CIMT definition applies to convictions that occurred prior to the BIA's change in Diaz-Lizarraga. And that's the holding. One final note, no court has held that the BIA's new definition of a theft-type CIMT is reasonable and must be accorded Chevron deference. In other words, no court has held that the Diaz-Lizarraga definition applies to convictions that occurred after 2016. This is likely because the 2016 convictions haven't made their way up to the circuits yet. But if I'm a betting man, I'd say a circuit split is coming our way soon. Lastly, the non-citizen in this case was a lawful permanent resident, but he was placed in removal proceedings based on his conviction for only one alleged CIMT. 
Normally, LPRs must be convicted of two CIMTs to be removable, but the non-citizen in this case was caught at the airport, trying to re-enter the U.S. from abroad, and because of his conviction, he was charged by DHS as an arriving alien, making him potentially removable for only one CIMT. This is a complicated issue that we'll address in future episodes, but for now, just remember, LPRs with criminal convictions need to be very, very careful about leaving the United States. And that's Francisco v. Attorney General, United States. Next up is a case out of the Fifth Circuit, Munez Granados v. Barr, published on May 12, 2020. This case concerns asylum and related relief, and the effects threats to one family member have on the asylum claim of another family member. In this case, the Fifth Circuit upheld the denial of a Mexican individual's application for asylum, withholding of removal, and torture convention protection. Some quick facts. Mr. Munez Granados came to the United States as a teenager and later learned that his father was being extorted in Mexico by various groups, including the Los Zetas drug cartel, for years. Los Zetas beat his father and threatened to kill his firstborn son, a.k.a. Mr. Munez Granados. His father passed away from natural causes before the asylum application was decided. The Fifth Circuit denied Mr. Munez Granados' asylum claim, holding that the threats did not rise to the level of past persecution and that he could not establish a well-founded fear of future persecution, in part because his father had passed away. As many of you know, persecution is a complicated legal concept requiring a sufficiently severe level of harm or fear of harm on account of the applicant's race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Now, Mr. Munoz Granados also asserted that he qualified for non-LPR cancellation of removal because, based on deficiencies in his notice to appear, the stop-time rule was never triggered by service of the NTA or a subsequent notice of hearing. The Fifth Circuit rejected this argument based on its February 2020 decision, Yanis Pana v. Barr. For more on this argument and others like it permeating throughout the circuits, I would direct your attention to Episodes 1 and 2 of the podcast. I'm sure we'll touch on this issue again in depth in future episodes as well. Now for some practice pointers and insights. First, the petitioner in this case made an interesting past persecution argument, asserting that he suffered past persecution due, in part, to the persecution his late father suffered. The Fifth Circuit noted that it had never held that a non-citizen can establish past persecution based on the persecution of another. But it didn't outright preclude the possibility should the right case present itself. On this point, check out the board's case from 2007, Matter of AK wherein the board noted that the harm to another may provide grounds for a well-founded fear of future persecution where the harm is, quote, tied to the applicant personally, end quote. This case also demonstrates the importance of burdens at immigration law, in this case, reasonable relocation. One of the reasons the Fifth Circuit denied Mr. Munez Renatos' asylum claim is because he failed to meet his burden to show he could not relocate within Mexico. But Mr. Munez Granados only had that burden because he failed to establish a claim to past persecution. If he had, DHS would have had the relocation burden, and things may have been different. One final note, at footnote 3, the Fifth Circuit sidesteps Mr. Munez Granados' retroactivity challenge to the Attorney General's 2019 decision in matter of LEA, also known as LEA II. 
in which Attorney General Barr held, among other things, that for a family-based particular social group to succeed, the family must be socially distinct in the eyes of the society of removal, in this case Mexico. The Fifth Circuit did not outright reject the retroactivity argument, but it did state that LEA II is, quote, not at odds with any precedent in the Fifth Circuit, end quote. So that doesn't bode well for future challenges in the Fifth Circuit. And that is Munez Granados Vibar. The last case we're discussing this week is out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, also published on May 15th, Lona v. Barr. This case, like the Tenth Circuit's case we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, also involves sua sponte motions to reopen and reconsider, this time based on fundamental changes in law. Miss Lona was an LPR, but was deported to Mexico in 2013, following a finding that her California petty theft and burglary convictions were theft-based aggravated felonies, defined at INA Section 101A43G. After Miss Lona was removed, the law changed in the Ninth Circuit. In 2014, the Ninth Circuit held in Rendon v. Holder that California's second-degree burglary offense is not a theft-based aggravated felony. And in 2015, in Lopez Valencia v. Lynch, the Ninth Circuit held, among other things, that California's petty theft statute is never an aggravated felony. So, if Miss Lona's removal proceedings had occurred in 2015, she would not have lost her LPR status and would not have been removed to Mexico. A few months after the Lopez Valencia decision, Miss Lona filed a motion to reconsider with the immigration court, arguing that the law had fundamentally changed. Now normally, motions to reconsider must be filed within 30 days of the immigration judge's decision, but the IJ and the BIA can equitably toll the 30-day requirement based on a change of law that invalidates the removal order, so long as the non-citizen acts with due diligence to bring her motion. And of course, as we know, an IJ and the BIA can always reopen proceedings sua sponte. In the Ninth Circuit, and based on the BIA's case matter of GD, the BIA should reopen proceedings sua sponte where, quote, a fundamental change of law, end quote, has occurred. In this case, the Ninth Circuit rejected Miss Lona's equitable tolling argument, finding that she had not acted with due diligence in bringing her motion. It's kind of a cruel finding. Essentially, the Ninth Circuit held that Miss Lona could have and should have asserted the arguments made in Lopez Valencia in her removal proceedings even though Lopez Valencia hadn't been issued yet at the time of her removal proceedings. Turning to the sua sponte request. If you recall, courts generally lack jurisdiction to review the substance of sua sponte motions to reopen or reconsider, unless the non-citizen asserts a non-discretionary legal or constitutional error in the BIA's decision. The Ninth Circuit held in this case that it lacked jurisdiction to review the BIA's sua sponte decision, even assuming that a fundamental change of law had occurred, because, according to the Ninth Circuit, the fundamental change of law standard merely describes the situation where the BIA may exercise its discretion. Put another way, the decision to reopen proceedings sua sponte is still discretionary, even when based on a fundamental change in law, and because it's discretionary, the circuit courts lack jurisdiction to review the BIA's decision. And that's the holding. Not much good here for non-citizens. 
While I try to stay away from discussing how the identity of the judges might influence a decision I discuss, I can't help but wonder how this decision might have come out differently had it fallen to a different Ninth Circuit panel, or how a different panel might address these issues in the future. Now for some practice pointers and notes. First, you may be wondering why we're not talking about the regulatory departure bar. After all, Miss Lona was deported from the United States in 2013. The reason is because the Ninth Circuit, like the Fifth Circuit and other circuits, has held that the regulatory departure bar to both sua sponte motions to reopen and non-sua sponte motions to reopen and reconsider is invalid and does not prevent non-citizens from bringing their motions to reconsider and reopen even after they've been removed from the United States. One final note. In a 2019 decision titled Menendez-Gonzalez v. Barr, the Ninth Circuit hinted that it might adopt the Third Circuit's, quote, settled course approach, end quote, to sua sponte motions to reopen and reconsider. Under the settled course approach, circuit courts can review sua sponte motions to reopen and reconsider where the BIA has violated its own settled policy, rule, or course of adjudication, i.e., if the BIA rules contrary to how it has ruled in the past, the circuit courts, under the settled course approach, can review the sua sponte motion to reopen or reconsider decision. The Ninth Circuit in this case definitively rejects the settled course approach to sua sponte reopening and any related dicta in Menendez-Gonzalez v. Barr. And that is Lona v. Barr. So there you have it. You're all caught up with last week's published immigration decisions. I'm Kevin Gregg from the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend. Rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review, wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think or answer any questions you may have. Email me at immigrationreviewpodcast at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at immigrationreview. And send me a tweet at imreview. That's I-M-M review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.